You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Ohab, uh, Obed, sorry, uh, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jothan. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, Joseph the, the, the father of Joseph, the, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. All right, so I'm going to need some audience participation here. All right, so sometimes you just look at me. And you listen so well, but I'm going to need some interaction. I want you to help me come up with what are some of the famous combinations or duos. For instance, salt and pepper is a great, powerful combination. What are some other powerful combinations? Peanut butter and jelly? Bread and butter? butter? Ketchup and mustard. Batman and Robin. Robin. What? Frodo and Sam. There we go. Nice. I expect that from you. Yes. Calvin and Hobbes, Tom and Jerry, Bert and Ernie, Mario and Luigi. What? If you're uh, my son, macaroni and ketchup. Yeah. If you're not Eli and you're Josh, then it's uh, Alpine Inn steak wrapped in bacon. That's the Lord's will there. So, um, so this powerful combination that we have in Matthew chapter 1 where is, is really important. It's really important for us to see these two titles put together. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, let me read it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That combination is really, really significant. And I want to spend some time looking at that. We looked at that last week, the son of David, that Jesus is 
the promised king of David. He is the rightful inheritor. He is the eternal king of all things. But when Matthew then pairs that with, as he starts the Jesus story, uh, with son of Abraham, we want to look at that very closely. What we've been doing uh, through this Advent series is, is taking that prophecy from 700 years before Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, when it tells us that unto us a son is given. That there's going to be a son that comes into the world who is going to be a gift to the world. He's going to be the rescuer, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so we're taking that son language and then jumping into Matthew, the first gospel, and then tracing how Matthew uses that term son. And he uses it at least five different times that we're going to look at. That Jesus is the son of David, son of Abraham. And it's really important as he begins his gospel and explains who Jesus is, that he's tying it into all of these Old Testament prophecies and promises. So last week we looked at Jesus being a son of David given to us. Today we're going to look at Jesus being a son of Abraham given to us. Next week that Jesus is a son of a virgin given for us, given to us. Um, and then uh, the, f the next week will be Jesus is a son out of Egypt given to us. And then on Christmas Day, that Jesus is a son of God given to us. So we're trying to see, as Matthew begins this, what we're supposed to get in this Christmas season, in this Christmas story. When Jesus comes, he's not just a remarkable baby that happened to do some interesting things, and other people did interesting things, but there's a unique gift of God, a unique promise being fulfilled in Jesus. So looked at Jesus, the son of David, last week. This week, Jesus, the son of Abraham. So I want to break our time into three parts. Here you go. You ready? We're going to look at Abraham for a few minutes. What does this mean when it says he's a son of Abraham? Secondly, we're going to look at the genealogy. This will be more interesting than you might think. This is the genealogy and why it's so significant and why he spends so much time unpacking this genealogy. And then number three, the combo. What is this powerful combo, this powerful duo? What does this mean? What does this mean for us that he would put those two together? Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. So let's just look at Abraham for a minute, the son of Abraham. If you go back into the Old Testament, and we've been in Genesis most of this year, so some of this should be familiar to you, but uh, Genesis is about the beginning of the world. God creates the world, creates it good, creates human beings in his image to have agency, to have a relationship, to have a unique connection with him. And then in Genesis chapter 3, humanity decided to rebel against God and plunge the whole world into corruption and into judgment and into sin. And humanity and the world has been broken ever since. Uh, that brokenness spreads all over the place and God eventually cleanses the whole world with a worldwide flood. And only Noah and his family survive. And then as Noah and his family begin to repopulate the earth, God gives this call to them that they are to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, to scatter and fill the whole world with his image, with his image bearers, to have dominion over the world and to spread out. And what happens in Genesis chapter 11 is that people again unite in rebellion against God. They unite in rebellion against God and they decide that they're going to build a tower to the heavens. I'm just going to read it from Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower from its top in the heavens, with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we dispersed over the whole, over the face of the whole earth. So they are rebelling against God's command to spread out, to fill the earth. 
they decide that they're going to rebel against God. And I think part of the reason why they're building a tower is so that they could survive a flood of God's judgment again. They could, they could reach a tower up to heaven and maybe they could actually withstand uh, the disobedience, the, dis, the, the punishment that God would bring against them. We're not really told that, but I wonder if that isn't part of it, is that they know that they are uniting rebellion against God and they need to create a city, they need to create a tower that will allow them to be able to overcome God's judgment when it comes. And the Lord came down to see the city, which is sort of ironic that he has to come all the way down to see their mighty tower. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And God said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them, which I think is sarcasm on God's part. Whoa, these people are really a threat to me. Come, let us go down there and let us confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from, from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So that really is where we get um, the explanation for why there are different nations and cultures and peoples spread out all throughout the world. It is an act of judgment that God would divide and spread out the people, that there would be divisions among them. In Genesis chapter 10, we have this table of nations, which shows us how the different people groups, how they got where they are and why they, how they're connected to the larger family tree. So right after God spreads out the nations, divides them into different places, spreads them out, confuses their language as an act of judgment, and, um, and scattering, um, he then immediately in chapter 12 picks a guy, picks a guy named Abraham, who's 75 years old, who lives in, a, um, in, in Mesopotamia, in the land of Ur, and he says immediately, the very next chapter, God is going to bless and gather those nations back. While he has scattered them in his judgment, and scattered them as an act of discipline against them, he immediately sets forth a plan that through Abraham and Abraham's descendants, there will be a blessing to all the nations. In Genesis chapter 12, this Abraham, this Abram, he's just minding his own business. He and his wife, they don't have any kids. He's 75, his wife's 65. And God just shows up and goes, you, Abram, I am going to bring a blessing to all of the nations through you. And he just shows up, Genesis chapter 12, unearned by Abraham. There's no indication that Abraham's even worshiping God yet at this point, but God calls him. God graciously calls him and says, I am going to gather all of the people that I have scattered and I'm going to gather them through your son. I'm going to bless them through you. Here's what Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who honors you I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, I am going to do this work through you. I am going to bless the nations through you. I am not sitting up here as a God who is, who is going to be angry forever. I have scattered the people, and yet I intend to save them, to rescue them. And I'm going to do it through you, Abraham. And Abraham believes God. And he moves his family, and he begins this long journey with God. The promise is renewed and refined in Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham has to cut the animals, and God himself goes through the parts, showing that he is the one who's going to be responsible for this promise. 
In Genesis chapter 15, this, the, uh, the covenant of circumcision is added and added to the promise. In, in chapter 21, Isaac is finally born 25 years after the promise has been made. And now the son of promise has come miraculously to this 100-year-old man and this 90-year-old woman. God has kept his promise to bless the nations through Isaac. But it's still just this small little thing. And then God calls Abraham to take his son, his only son, and to go up onto the mountain of Moriah and to sacrifice him. And Abraham obeys, except at the last moment God stops him. And God provides a ram as a substitute, which shows that, 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 which is a picture of what's coming when God will give his own son. But right after that, he makes his final guarantee of the promise to Abraham. Here's what he tells him. He says, by myself I have sworn, this is God, swearing by himself, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So if you go to Matthew chapter 1, and he's telling you that Jesus is the son of David. He's talking about the Davidic covenant, that there will be an eternal king, and Jesus is that eternal king. But not only is he an eternal king of Israel, he is the son of Abraham, which means he's the fulfillment of the blessing of all the earth. That he is the one that was sent not just for the nation of Israel, but for all the nations. That he was sent to be a rescuer of all the nations. That he wasn't going to come and lead Israel to conquer all the nations, but he was going to come as Israel's Messiah and king in order that those who follow him would then become messengers to the nations, that they would become missionaries to the nations. So calling Jesus the son of Abraham is to say that all the nations will be blessed unconditionally, unearnedly, through a descendant of Abraham, and Jesus is that descendant. The one who will take the judgment, reverse the scattering, overcome the divisions, transcend the boundaries, and reconcile man to God and man to each other is Jesus. It is Jesus Christ who will come and will reverse the judgment and the separation, both with God and among people. The separation that came at the Tower of Babel will be reversed through a son of Abraham. And Matthew is saying Jesus is that son. He is that ultimate son. Isaac was a miniature version of a fulfillment of that. The nation of Israel was kind of a medium fulfillment, but the ultimate fulfillment was in Jesus Christ. And those who trust in him, we become, as the Bible says, sons of Abraham by faith. And so we also get to be blessings to the nations through Christ. He is the ultimate blessing to all the nations. The Abrahamic covenant is a vow by God to all the people that are under his judgment, which is all of us. All of us. Because of our sin. It is a vow of God to all people under his judgment that he is coming to rescue us that he has come to rescue us. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, a son of Abraham is coming for you. He will come to you to bless you, to fix you, to save you, to redeem you, to bring you into a new family defined by faith, not by ethnicity or language or boundary or geography, but bound by faith, faith like Abraham, faith in a son of Abraham, he will bring you into a new family and make you into a son of Abraham too. That's what's being communicated when it says that Jesus is the son of David. He's not just a king, but he's also the blessing to all nations. The blessing to you. Whatever you're going through, whatever hurt you're going through, we have a king who can fix it, and he's going to bring a blessing to those who will trust in him 
He is the blessing of all nations. He's the fulfillment of the covenant, both to David and to Abraham. He will bless, he will fix, he will save, he will redeem all the nations. He will fix what's broken and overcome what separates us from God and from each other. So that's number one. Pretty amazing that all of that stuff we've been studying in Genesis is all packed into this one little statement, shorthand, son of Abraham, and all of it then just comes bursting forth in Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all of it. Secondly, let's look at this genealogy for just a moment because he's just made two big claims. Matthew's just made two big claims that Jesus Christ, now he's writing this gospel, he's writing this a good decade or more after Jesus has already come around. So people are already familiar with that name. This church thing is starting to spread and Matthew is now going to explain some of the rumors they're hearing about Jesus and for other people to hear it. So he's, he's saying that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah that's promised in the Old Testament. And he's the son of David, son of Abraham. That's a big claim. Can Matthew prove it? That would be the question. If you're a Jewish person and you hear about Messiahs all the time, this is so monotonous because there's always somebody that comes and they've got a thing and they've got an idea and they've got a strategy and it's cool for a little while and then it falls apart and it's not the real thing. What's to say that this Jesus Messiah thing is any different than any of the other failed Messiahs that we've seen down through the generations? And Matthew goes, no, no, let me prove it to you. The Jewish people know that if the Messiah is going to be real, he's got to, he's got to fit the mold. He's got to be of the right descendancy. So you can write a Messiah off immediately if he's not a son of Abraham, if he's not a son of David. And so Matthew starts there and goes, no, the very bottom level requirement, I can prove it to you. Do you remember in math, anybody remember math and you had to do geometry or algebra or proofs? Do you remember proofs? Anybody have to do proofs? Proofs. I was actually really good at proofs. I didn't enjoy doing them. But the idea is, is that you have to, you have to show your work, right? You ever, did anybody ever get in trouble with that? You would just come up with the answer, it's 34 or A, B squared or whatever it is, right? You just write down the answer and then your teacher goes, you have to show your work. You can't just give me the answer, you've got to show me your work. And so, you know, I was, math was one of the things. I was, I was good at math and science. I was not good at reading, writing, or public speaking. So <laughs> guess what the Lord has me doing? <laughs> Nothing to do with math and science. And everything to do with, uh, well, what you're watching right now. You just heard me read. So, okay. The, but this, uh, this, is, this, is, this is, Matthew is not content to just give the answer in verse 1. He wants to persuade that he can show his work. He can prove this. To those that would go, okay, does Jesus meet the qualifications for consideration? Does he even, is he even qualified for the job of Messiah? He would have to be a son of David, son of Abraham. And Matthew goes, I can prove it. I can show you the work. I can show you exactly how we get from Abraham to David and from David to Jesus. I can prove it to you that he is qualified to be the Messiah. He is the one who's qualified. Now, this isn't the only thing because he's going to tell the rest of a gospel to prove it. This isn't enough to just by itself to say that he's the Messiah, but it is the basic qualification. So he's showing his work here. And we've got this long list of dead people, uh, which is, doesn't seem like a like the way that we would start something if we were wanting to get people's attention. Let me show you a whole list of dead people that you can't, uh, that, that's kind of a yawn, but it is. It's a showing of the work. The claimed messiahs all fall away. Jesus is uniquely qualified, at least in part, because he checks the boxes. So here's what we have. You look in verse 17. All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. 
And then from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon uh, to Christ is 14 generations. Now, this is really interesting how Matthew structures this because he actually leaves some names out because he wants to get to this even 14 number. Now, this feels a little weird to us in 2021. This isn't exactly how we would do history, but for its time, this works. This makes sense. This is legit, even though he is not being literally counting every name. That's not how a Hebrew person would do it. That's not a problem. That's not a problem to his readers. That's not a problem. That's not a problem with the Bible. But why the number 14? Why does he work so hard to show that it's 14 in these three movements of the story? One theory is that multiple of seven, seven's a complete number. Seven's one of those important numbers in the Bible. So double it, 14. Okay, it's kind of a memorable number. That could be one. Another is that if you take and assign numerical values to the letters of David's name, you get 14. So there could be a connection. I'm not entirely sure why the author, why Matthew is wanting to really zero in on this 14, but he does make it a nice, systematic, even connection there. And I think that maybe it's even connected to David um, as a sort of mnemonic device, a way to remember that David, oh, that his name kind of works out to 14. Now I could remember the names. I think this is a way of memorizing the genealogy of Jesus. You don't have to get every single name because we know what you mean. I think it's a mnemonic device that's tied to the number 14 so that it would be memorable. And that any Jewish person could then recall and put together and go, you know, like the little jingle. Eight, 30 days has September, April, June, and November. All the rest have 31 except for February is 28. Except on leap year, it's plus one, right? Really catchy jingle, right? But I, you didn't say all the months, but the jingle helps you remember how many days are in a month, right? I think that's what he's doing with the genealogy. It's accurate, it's true, but it doesn't feel like it has to say everything, and it's putting it together in a rhythmic way to be memorized. Matthew's doing something really clever here, really amazing here, and it really outlines the three movements of God keeping his promises down through history. We've got movement one, which is from Abraham the rise all the way up to kingship in movement number one. 14 generations of going from a man with no kids to a kingdom with its greatest king. Movement number one. Look at the faithfulness of God to do that. Then you've got 14 generations of kingship, but it declines. And then what happens is you have the deportation of Babylon and Israel's never really a nation again. And it's almost like this last 14 generations is underground. The people lost the kingship. And so now you have this third set of 14 names of men who should be kings, but they were unfaithful to the Lord. And so they lost the kingship. And so now this promise has gone underground. Isaiah calls it a burned out stump. The root, but a root of Jesse. So the people have been unfaithful. God has been faithful. The people were in this primo spot of kings in this middle section, and then it went underground. But God was still faithful. God was still faithful to preserve a line that you could trace to get to the ultimate king. From promise number one to Abraham to the pinnacle of David, and then a slow decline, and it's almost invisible for 14 generations until, boom, a great light comes. Boom, Jesus is going to bring forth all of the promises I think Matthew is putting these together so that it would be memorable and you could recall Israel's story of how God had been faithful to build them up and they had been unfaithful and almost invisible, but now the promises have come. It has come. 
Why? You actually, if you do the, the math here, you go three sets of 14 would add up to what? 14 plus 14 is 28, plus another 14 is 42. Count the names. It's actually 41. So is Matthew off here? So just, I don't think he's off here. I think either, there's two potential possibilities of why Matthew gets the number off here. He's doing this on purpose. He's not wrong. I, he's either counting David twice because David is such a key member of this. Like from Abraham to David is 14 generations. And then from David to Jeconiah is 14. And then from Jeconiah to Christ is 14. That's one way to kind of resolve this. It's not a contradiction in the Bible. It's Matthew counting and counting the top one twice. That's one way to kind of resolve this challenge. The other is Jeconiah is counted twice. Because look in verse 11. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So if you go to verse 17, the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations from David to the deportation of Babylon. So he's counting 14 generations to an event, not a person. And Jeconiah crosses that event. So you could count him on both sides. Does that make sense? The reason I bring this up, you may not find this all that interesting, but you will find people who want to refute Christianity based on this genealogy. One, because Matthew has left out some names. And two, he can't even count right. But you have to understand what a Jewish writer is trying to do. And if you look at the text closely, you, would, you have solutions. Matthew is doing something really special here. And I think he's doing it to make it memorable. His goal is not to try to get every single name, but to show you the movement of God and to make it memorable so that you would then be able to speak it to others. You would be a witness to others. So the bottom line of this is that he is showing the proof of his claim. Jesus is the son of Abraham who will be a blessing to all nations. He is the son of David, who is the eternal perfect king. And I can prove it to you. And I can prove it to you in a way that you would remember that tells the whole God story from Abraham to Christ in this series of names. So that genealogy is actually quite beautiful, intricate, and glorious because a Jewish person would go, it, it checks out. Like, it, he's qualified. He, he's the guy. He's the one. And so then you would read the rest of this gospel with great anticipation because you're like, oh, he, he could be it. He could be the one. He checks the boxes. He's of the right lineage. We've also got in this genealogy four women. So typically you're tracing the men. You see that through genealogies. Um, but you've got these little inserts of these ladies that are put in here. Four different women are mentioned. And it's, you've got Tamar. In verse 3, you've got Rahab in verse 5. Um, you've got Ruth also in verse, you've got Ruth and Rahab in verse 5. And you've got the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, in verse 6. Um, Tamar, as part of the story, she actually sleeps with her father-in-law Judah to get a child. That's actually Judah's fault for kind of putting her in that situation in Genesis 38. So Tamar, it's a Difficult story to read there in Genesis chapter 38. Rahab is a prostitute, a Canaanite prostitute, who protects the Jewish spies and believes in God and is preserved at the fall of Jericho. She gets to be included in this lineage. Ruth is a Moabitess. So she's not actually an ethnic Israel, Israelite either. She's part of Moab. If you know the story of the Moabites, they're a wicked people. And then you've got Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Uriah was a Hittite. So I don't know that Bathsheba 
necessarily was, we're not sure if she was of Israelite origin either. So you've got these four women that are included in the genealogy of Jesus. And this is sort of scandalous to include women in there anyway. But then to include these four non-Jewish women who are desperate, who are bottom rung of society, who are potentially morally questionable, to include them in the genealogy is fascinating because it tells us that God was already weaving a blessing to all nations in the story. That these women would get to be included in the genealogy tells you about the heart and plan of God to bring the Gentiles in and to bring the broken, the destitute, the morally compromised, the abused, to bring them into the genealogy. They get to contribute genetically to the Messiah. They get to be included. So I think this inclusion of these four women tells us so much about the plan of God and the point of of his character, the point of the Messiah was not just to be for Israel, but to be for all nations and to be for the broken and the destitute and the outsider. That this was going to be something that included all peoples. And all of these stories down through the Old Testament are not just random gross stories, but they're part of the story of God redeeming the world. He's going to use us. He's even going to use sinful actions of people to bring about his plan and his purposes. So this genealogy is just an amazing um, picture, amazing proof claim, an amazing memorizable summary of the story of God's grace and faithfulness with unfaithful people. So lastly, combo, last part of our message this morning. So this opening thesis holds up. That's the point. When Matthew starts with this big claim that Jesus Christ is the son of David, the son of Abraham, it holds up. You can look at the genealogy and goes, yep, it checks out. It checks out. Matthew's not making this up. This is legitimate. Now, let's think about these two in combination with each other. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the perfect eternal king, the son of Abraham, the blessing of all nations. Now, if you, that's going to be the theme of the whole book of Matthew until you get to the final verses. When Jesus completes his work and is about to ascend into heaven, look at what he says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Matthew's thesis in verse 1 comes to completion in Matthew 28. Look at this. Jesus came to them. He's risen from the dead. He's about to ascend into heaven. And he gives this charge to those handful of followers that are with him. He said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, which sounds like what? A king, right? The son of David king. All, Jesus says, I am the son of David, who will now ascend to my heavenly throne. All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. I am the king of everything, spiritual, physical. I'm in charge of all of it. That is all mine. I possess all authority. To be president of the United States comes with a lot of authority, but a lot of checks and balances. To, be, to have authority over heaven, to have authority over earth, no checks and balances. He is the king universally, eternally, permanently, a son of David. That go, therefore, which is a command from the king, go, therefore, and make disciples of what? all the nations. Well, what was Abraham supposed to be? 
a blessing to all the nations. So now you have son of David, right? Jesus is putting these two together in his final charge to his followers as he's about to ascend into heaven. I am the son of David, king over everything. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And therefore, you are the way that I am going to bless the nations. You're going to take my gospel and people are going to respond to that gospel and they're going to become children of Abraham as well by faith. And you, I through you, will be a blessing to all the nations. This is not just for you. The gospel didn't just come to you. It came to you because it's on its way to someone else. You're sent as the king who has authority over everything to go and be a blessing to the nations because I am the son, not of David only, but a son of Abraham. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He gives the formula for how we're to be a blessing to the nations. And that last kingly statement, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I will do it. I will be your king all the way through, and I will be a blessing through you. So go fearlessly. Go relentlessly. So you can put this formula together right here, this combo. This is better than ketchup and mustard. This is better than bacon and steak, right? The son of David plus the son of Abraham means this. This is what's happening. At Christmas time, this is what's being given to us. An anointed eternal King Jesus, who is the blessing for all nations. Do you see? Do you see what Matthew is telling us right at the beginning of his gospel and what Jesus is telling us at the very end of the gospel and that this will always be true. This is now the reality in the world. And we get to be witnesses to that reality. We're called to be witnesses to that reality. And we're to call others to come into submission to that reality. To leave the kingship of their own lives. To, keep, to quit just pursuing blessing for themselves and be a blessing to others. To come under the kingship of Jesus and then be used of him to be a witness to, uh, to the world around us. This is called the gospel of the kingdom. I think you could summarize the gospel of the kingdom of, uh, this way. You can go back a slide. The anointed eternal King Jesus is the blessing for all nations. That's the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has come to a broken and sinful world to be king and to be a blessing. From Matthew 1.1 to Matthew 28.8.20, the every single verse in between is teaching persuasively in a divinely inspired text, historically legitimate, eyewitness guarantee that Jesus is who he said he is, son of David, anointed eternal king. And he did what he said he would do, which is accomplish blessing and redemption for all the nations through his death and resurrection on the cross. He accomplished and purchased forgiveness and grace and redemption for anyone of any nation, of any language, of any history to be brought into his family, to be brought into the family of Abraham. He is who he said he was, son of David, and he has accomplished what he said he would, be, would accomplish, which is a blessing to all nations, reconciling us to God and to each other through his life, death, and resurrection. So, bottom line. The story of Christmas is a big deal because it's because all of history has been funneling to this moment. All of history has been funneling to this moment where Christ would come into the world. The Old Testament just gives testimony to that reality. That's why your Old Testament is so long. Is <laughs> because it's funneling all of eternity down to this one 
person born in Bethlehem. And God takes so much time to bring that to fruition so that it would be so undeniably him that does it. Who could arrange this over thousands of years? Who could pull these prophecies and these promises together? Who could bring forth a word from 40 different authors over 1,500 years or 1,200 years? Who, who could bring all of this together in one coherent story but the God of the universe who's outside of time? No man could create this. Matthew is just pointing to one aspect of this, which is son of David, son of Abraham. John will take another, that he's the word made flesh. Paul will take another, etc., etc. There's so many routes to Christ, but Christ is the only route to God. He's the only way. And here's what all of the writers of the New Testament are saying. They're saying, see, it's true. It's real. This kind of God exists who would give this kind of son. And he has come for you and for me and for the nations. He has done this because he loves us. He has done this because he makes and keeps promises. He has done this because he has tied his glory to giving you forgiveness, to giving you redemption, to giving you wholeness, to giving you joy in his son. He has tied his glory to the redemption of sinners through his son. He is the blessing of all nations. He is the blessing for all nations, and that includes you. So, Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, that sentence means at least two things right here. You are called by the king. We have this throughout Matthew where Jesus calls people to follow him. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So as an individual, you are being called to the king. And you must respond. Your parents can't respond for you, kids. You have to respond. You are born outside of the kingdom and you will remain outside the kingdom unless you hear the call of the king, repent of your sins and trust in him and follow him, come under his kingdomship. And you can do that now. You can just in your own heart say, I get it. I want it. I admit that I'm on the outside looking in because of my sin and I deserve your wrath. But I want you to forgive my sins. I want to be identified with you. I want to follow you. I, want, I bow to you as king and you will be brought in. That's all it takes is a genuine cry of faith. And everyone must do that themselves. Parents, we're called as families by the king to lead our families under the lordship of the king. Our home, our kids are not ours. They're the king's. They're for his glory, not ours. Our screens are the king's to be used by him. Our budgets, our possessions, our time, his. The king demands all of us. And to embrace him as king is to have him be king over everything. So is there areas of your life? If you asked your kids, is there evidence that Jesus is king of our home? They might tell you the truth. <laughs> yes or no. As a church, is Jesus king of this church? We are called by the king as a church to preach Christ. No programs, no curriculum, no political action, no outreach strategies, no worship styles. None of that compares to the glory of beholding and proclaiming Christ. Those things might be helpful, but only to the extent that they hold up Christ. May our church never be identified by anything over and above our identity with 
Jesus Christ, the King, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. And I need your help in doing that. And that's part of why we have membership the way we do, is that we want to commit to go, yeah, it's going to take all of us signed up, held accountable, to keep Jesus king because the natural tendency of our sinful hearts, of the world, of the devil is to pull us and put something else in charge. And we're just going to commit that we will never tempt one another to do anything but put Christ first. And I'm willing to be called out if I'm putting anything, my own pride, my own traditions, my own whatever, my own preferences above Christ being king here. So we are called by Christ the King as a church to put him first. And then if you are called by the King, you're called in to a family. You're called in to a fellowship with him, but then you are sent. You are called to the nations because he's not just the King of David that is hoarding up these people. He is. He's gathering them up. This is evidence of that. But in a few minutes, we're about to dismiss and you're going to scatter and you are called to be a blessing to the nations. You are called by a King and you are called to the nations. That's why God didn't immediately beam us into heaven is because we have work to do. We have a king. So as a church, we must speak lovingly of the nations because God loves the nations. We must be a church that prays for the nations. Bob did briefly this morning. Prays for the nations. We must give generously of our own personal budgets and also of our church budgets so that the gospel can get to people who have not heard it yet. And we must be the kind of people that send others. We've sent the Kellys to Japan. We've sent, uh, we've sent Stephen to Alaska. We've sent Sarah to Central High School. <laughs> Needs Jesus there, right? Sent to all the nations. And then we must ask the question, I think all of us, is should I go? Should I go to the nations? Should I pray that my kids get sent to Afghanistan for the glory of Christ? Should I pray? We should pray. Because that's our calling. The king who has authority over everything, we have no authority to tell him no. Right? So let's pray that we would be a church cares about the nations. As a family, what part does the nations play in your conversation around the table? When you pray for your meals, when you have conversations, when you pray at night, do the nations ever come up? Do you pray that maybe God would send some of our kids to the nations? And what about you as an individual? Do you speak to your neighbor? Do you hide from those who are different from you? Do you care of those who are of another culture, of another language, or do you fear them? Do they look like a threat to you, or do they look like a potential brother or sister in Christ? So as individuals, as families, as a church, we have these two calls. We're called by the king to bow the knee to him, to make him supreme and king over all things. And we're also called to the nations, to scheme and plan to get the gospel to whoever, wherever, whenever, however it takes to get there. Otherwise, we're just wasting the king's resources. Like, it's just, nothing else matters if this Christmas story is true. And if Matthew is true. And if his call is true. So from Matthew 1.1 1, 1 to Matthew 28.20, 20, there is a call. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Christmas is an annual call that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So repent, change what you're doing and orient yourself to the call of the king. Every Sunday is a call of the kingdom. Every sunrise is a call of the king. Every heartbeat, every face that you see that is made in God's image is a call to bow the knee to the king and give the gospel to somebody. Every breath, every heartbeat, every sunrise, every encounter with every human being is a call to us that the, heaven, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right here, right now, I'd like us to just bow our heads for just a moment, and I'm going to close us in prayer. But right here, right now, I want you to hear the call of the king to trust in him. If you have not done that, then I encourage you to pray about that right now. And if you have questions, I'll be around. I don't want you to do this flippantly. I don't want you to do this in a sense of emotion or pressure. I want you to do this because you think it's true. And we want to help you get there. Hear the call of the king to trust in him. And also hear the call of, to rearrange everything you can. Not so that you can avoid the world or condemn the world, but bless the world as an ambassador of Christ, as a son of Abraham by faith. Friends, let's commit, maybe even covenant together to respond to the call of our king day in, day out, and go all out for the sake of the nations. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this massive statement that you opened the gospel with. Gospel of Matthew, we thank you that by your spirit you have led him to write down exactly the right words that we need. Thank you for guiding us in your providence all of these years and all of the things that have gone into us hearing it today. And I pray, God, that um, it's not my words that have been persuasive, but an explanation of your word. And I pray, God, that your spirit would shine a light on Christ in our hearts and that we would look at him. And we would, by faith, see our sins, our guilt, our um, our bitterness, all of those things melt away in light of the glory of Christ. And God, we pray that you'd grab our hearts and that we would hear your voice to come to you in repentance and faith to make you king. And then we would also hear at the same time that same call to go and say something to someone to rearrange our lives, our homes, our families, because there are people out there that need to hear of this great king and need to know and experience for themselves the blessing of a God who sent his son to live, to die, to, be risen, to rise again, to save them. Everyone deserves at least a chance to know whether they receive it or not is between them and you, but it is our obligation to at least deliver the mail and give people a chance. So Lord, I pray that you would find us faithful as a church, as families, as individuals to that call. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.